You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with Lord's Day 13, the last part of the Heidelberg Catechism, our scripture reading is taken, first of all, from John 20, the verses 24 to 31. And there we have one of those post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus, this time when he appears to the eleven, including Thomas. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thus far, our first New Testament reading, then we go to Philippians chapter 2, the verses 1 to the end of 11. And there the Apostle Paul writes, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the spirit of any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. I preach to you this afternoon from the Word of God as the church summarizes and confesses this in the second part of Lord's Day 13, question and answer 34. Why do you call him our Lord? 
Because he has ransomed us body and soul from all our sins, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, and has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, it would appear that it took Mary and Joseph a long time to get to Bethlehem. They couldn't book a flight on WestJet. They couldn't go to the local Greyhound station, buy a ticket and hop aboard. They couldn't just step into their cars and go on the local freeway south. None of those means of transportation were available to them. They either went on foot or by donkey or camel. And in addition, most likely it wasn't as the crow flies either. A direct line from Nazareth in the north to Bethlehem in the south goes straight through Samaritan territory. But seeing that Jews and Samaritans didn't get along, to say the least, that would not have been a very good idea. And so most likely from Nazareth they went east, crossed the Jordan, then went south, and then at Jericho crossed back west, across the Jordan, went up to Jerusalem, and then from Jerusalem went down to Bethlehem. All in all, it was a rather long and arduous journey, and no doubt it was made even more challenging by the fact that Mary was expecting. Now, it may be that this long journey is also making you think of our journey through the Heidelberg Catechism at this point, because it's been a little, I admit, on the long side. First, we stop to consider what it means when the Apostles' Creed says that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. And thereafter, we looked at our adoption as children of God. And now today, this afternoon, we're going to stop and consider what it means that the Apostles' Creed calls Jesus Christ Lord, our Lord. And then, of course, you may wonder, is that relevant? And especially, is that relevant in view of the festive season that we've entered? And the answer, beloved, is surely yes. For what did the angel say to the shepherds? Just who would bring them and the world great joy? Just who is going to be born in the town of David? And the answer is that a Savior would be born. And who is that Savior? Well, the angel says he is Christ the Lord. But the angel said to them, to the shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you who is Christ the Lord. Earlier, Zechariah, the priest, had been told about the birth of his special son who would go on before the Lord in the power and spirit of Elijah. And after his special son was born, Zechariah prophesied about his son, for he says, you will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him. So it's very clear from this whole narrative that the one who's coming is the Lord. Christ, the Lord, is coming. 
And so if you ask who comes in the fullness of time, who comes to us, so to speak, at Christmas time, you may say Jesus comes, or the Son of God comes, or the Son of David, or Jesus the Christ, or the Emmanuel. But you may also say Christ, the Lord has come. But what does that mean? And why is that relevant and important to us today? What does it have to do with the fact that we live today and that the Lord has come? I preach to you, beloved, on the following theme, Catechism Advent. He is Christ the Lord. And if you want to whittle it down, you can say, we're going to look at what this means, how it applies, and where it leads. So he is Christ the Lord. What does this mean, first of all? How does this apply? And where exactly does this lead us? Now, beloved, it has to be acknowledged that the New Testament word for Lord is most often translated from the Greek word kurios or kurie. And as such, this word Lord has, has a number of different meanings in the New Testament. Sometimes it can be used as a kind of normal form of address and carry much the same meaning as sir or mister. At other times, it can be used in a slightly more elevated sense in the idea of master or teacher. And in addition, there are also situations of special need where the name Lord is mixed with human helplessness and desperation. And then it comes out as, Lord, help, please help. But nevertheless, it doesn't stop there. For there are also an ever-increasing number of instances where the name Lord takes on Extra dimensions and extra weight. Take, for example, what the angel says to the shepherds. He calls Jesus Christ the Lord. And that's surely more than simply a matter of fact or a polite form of address. It has in it the ring already of divinity. And you know, that ring of divinity that gets louder and louder and louder as you go through the New Testament and even into the epistles. For example, Luke 5, the miraculous catch of fish. When when Simon Peter sees what the Lord Jesus has just done through this miracle, it says he, he falls on his knees and he confesses, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Obviously, Peter is convinced that the person who has just worked this great miracle is much more than a special man with special powers. He somehow is connected to the Holy God. And there is this fundamental incompatibility, he senses, between Christ and him. Or, for example, what happens in John 11. The connection with the raising of Lazarus from the dead. In that context, Mary and Martha, you can see they use the name Lord as well. And you can tell they they use it in an exalted manner. Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who was to come into the world. You see here, Lord and Son of God are linked. It's evident that Martha... 
and Mary regard Jesus as the divine Lord. And you know, the same is obvious from our scripture reading in John 20, where, where Thomas shows up a week late and, and Jesus has him see his hands and touch his side. And then Thomas exclaims, my Lord and my God. In the same breath, the same sentence. There's this sense of equivalency. And you find it as well in that other scripture passage which we've read from Philippians 2, which, which climaxes in the fact that every tongue is going to confess one day that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, beloved, we see, we see how this name keeps on getting more and more important, further we go into the New Testament. But yet, that's not all that happens here. We also need to ask ourselves, why is it that this particular name, Lord, becomes so popular and is used so often in the New Testament? And you know, the answer is kind of twofold. First of all, you've got to think of the Jews. The Jews would have one perspective on this matter, and the Greek Christians would have another perspective on this matter. When, whenever the Jewish Christians heard the use of the name Lord, they would think back to the Old Testament, and, and they would connect it up to Yahweh, although they never would say Yahweh. They would also substitute Adonai, Lord. That's what would ring in their ear. They'd almost automatically make the connection with Lord in the New Testament and the Lord God, the God of the covenant in the Old Testament. So if you were a Jew, a Jewish Christian, and you heard that name Lord, you think of God. You think of power. You think of majesty, of sovereignty, of greatness, of incomprehensibility. But you know, if you were a Greek Christian, you'd look at it a little differently. Because you see, when the Greeks heard the word Lord or Kyrios, they didn't right away think back to the Old Testament. No, they, they thought in terms of their own culture. In terms of important people, powerful people, prosperous people, people who, who owned bought and sold slaves. Because in the New Testament context, that word kurios, first of all, for a Greek, would mean the master, the owner of people, of slaves. And you know, that's something very common in the New Testament world. We can hardly imagine it today. But being a slave, seeing slaves around... Having people being bought and sold was a normal facet of everyday life at that time. And so they knew all about lords and masters in connection with slavery. 
And now, beloved, it's these two ideas, the one embedded going back to the Old Testament, the one that's connected to the culture around them, that in a sense comes together here in the New Testament and to some extent in the catechism as well. This whole idea that Christ is Lord, meaning he's God, he's sovereign, but he's also master, ruler, owner, possessor of everything. Everything that lives and that breathes. Now, of course, you also notice, for example, what the catechism does with this. The Catechism says, because he has ransomed us body and soul from all our sins, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, and has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. The Catechism especially stresses lordship in connection with slavery and being redeemed, being ransomed. And so, you know, when... A lot of those New Testament believers talked about Jesus as Lord. They regarded him as, as their master. As the one who gave them their marching orders. As the one who was ultimately in control of their life and of their agenda. And of everything they did. Now, of course, beloved, that may, to some extent, surprise you. Being compared to a slave and looking at Jesus as a slave master is a rather revolutionary way of looking at lordship and at life. A lot of people would find that repulsive. A lot of people would say, I'm, I'm not a slave. I've never been a slave. I don't know anything about slavery. And, and I don't recognize Jesus Christ as being a master in that sense at all. This has got nothing to do with me. But, but beloved, if you read the scriptures constantly, then you cannot escape this matter. So often the Apostle Paul will begin a letter and say, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, which is the same as saying, I am a slave. I am under the orders. Of Jesus Christ. That's the one who calls the shots. In my life. That's the one whom I serve. So Paul. Didn't consider this to be an insult. But an honor. And you know if you, you think about it. You can also understand a bit why, why Paul thinks this way. Because the Apostle Paul looks at the bigger picture, and the bigger picture is that in terms of history and background and origin, at one time we've all been under different ownership. We've been under the ownership of the devil. And that hasn't exactly been a nice, kind of ownership. Scripture links so often the devil, Satan, serpent, the dragon to the kingdom of darkness. And, and we've read about that as well. 
You're either, Scripture says, in the kingdom of light or your kingdom of darkness. There's only two kingdoms. And Paul knows, before I was in the kingdom of darkness, I didn't see, I didn't understand, I wasn't free, I was guilty, I was oppressed. But then Jesus Christ came along. And he liberated me, not with silver or with gold, but with his precious blood. He took me out of that dark kingdom. This morning we heard a bit about the devil too, didn't we? And that's to be said that in this Lord's Day, the devil figures rather prominently. I'm not sure how prominently the devil still figures in our lives today. I suspect that most of the time we kind of poo-poo the devil, dismiss him. There are times when Christians get all disturbed and caught up in the devil and so on. But beloved, be assured the devil is still around. Peter says he he's running around, he's prowling huh? like a lion waiting to devour, and he does. Lots of people are, especially in our, our Western world, lots of people are, are deserting the Christian faith. I think it's a waste of time, waste of money, waste of de- devotion and dedication. They want to go their own way. March to the tune of their own drummer. So they don't bother to worship, they don't bother to serve, they don't bother to pray, they don't read anymore. They become children of this world. But that's the same as being children of darkness. And putting yourself in the domain of the evil one. That's what so many people are doing. And beloved, that domain is still there. That domain of darkness. I think, for example, give you an illustration. Let's look for a moment at the entertainment industry that is so dominant in our world and culture today. What kind of a product does the entertainment industry produce? What kind of music, movies, videos, games, television programs... Would I be accurate if I said to you that all of these things produce products that are wholesome, filled with the fruit of the Spirit, and self-control, and gentleness, and all the rest? Would I be wrong if I said to you that all of these things produced by our entertainment industry today are more connected to light than to darkness, to blessing than to curse? You know how ridiculous a statement that is. Our culture today is being oppressed by an industry that promotes endless violence and bloodshed, greed and self-centeredness, immorality and fornication. And you can go on and on. And you can also look at the people in this industry. Do they live balanced, happy, steadfast, wholesome kind of lives? 
Do they prosper personally? Do they prosper in their marriages? Beloved Hollywood and the like is a wasteland. A wasteland. And yet how many people don't worship and esteem and bow before the cults of modern day entertainment. And you can be sure the devil is applauding in the background. Now, of course, I realize, I realize too that sometimes Christians overdo this devil thing. Sometimes, and that happens too, Christians act as if there is a devil behind every bush, as they used to say, a communist behind every bush. And sometimes people also would have you believe that no matter what kind of personal problem that you have, it's somehow linked to the devil and to bondage. And we've got to cast out that devil. Now, I don't want to say that demon possession doesn't happen. But it strikes me that so often in our culture, it's an escape among certain Christians anyway from personal responsibility and accountability. Yet in spite of that, in spite of how we in the Christian community may abuse the devil and the works of the devil, the reality is he is still there and he is still active. And therefore, what a great thing it is that Jesus Christ has come and taken us out of that lordship of the devil and brought us into his own lordship. That he's taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and superstition and violence and self-centeredness and brought us into the kingdom of light and glory and forgiveness and, and wholesomeness. What a blessing. And so, beloved, when we say Jesus Christ is Lord, What are we really saying? We're saying together with the Apostle Paul that Jesus Christ is the one I serve, the one I listen to, the one whose commands are my orders, the one whose will are my wishes. You know, it's strange. Last time, We talked about our adoption as sons and daughters of God. This time we're talking about our slavery. Sounds contradictory, doesn't it? What it illustrates is the fact that being a Christian has many dimensions and sides to it. Of course, if you're in Christ, you're one of his sons and daughters. You belong to God's family. You have God as father. You have Jesus Christ as older brother. You have fellow believers as brothers and sisters in the Lord. You belong to that great, glorious family made up of many tongues and people from many tribes and nations and so forth. What a blessing. But then today, it's about slavery. It's about service. It's about listening and doing what somebody else wants us to do. 
And I dare say, beloved, that's not a contradiction. I'm a son. And I'm a slave. And I'm proud of both. And I hope you are as well. That you could say, I'm a daughter, I'm a son of God, and I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And you know, beloved, that has all kinds of implications for daily life and daily living. Because when we live our lives, we live them according to a certain agenda. And who sets the agenda of our lives? Do we do that personally? Or is it set by the entertainment industry? Or is it set by our family? Or is it set by our friends? Who sets the agenda of our lives? And the gospel says, Jesus Christ sets the agenda for my life. It isn't so wrong to ask yourself, what would my Lord and Savior want me to do? How does he want me to act in my relationships, in my marriage, as a husband, as a wife, as a single person? How does he want me to act in my business, in my free time? You know, we so easily become dualistic. That's God's time. That's my time. That's God's business. That's my business. And here we have one standard, and there we have another standard. Scripture says, if you are in Christ, in Christ the Lord, it cannot be. I cannot continue. It's only one standard for all of life, for all of living. Because there's only one Lord before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will see. And so, beloved, we are sons, daughters, slaves of Christ. We are in the kingdom of light. And I dare say, this is a kingdom established by Jesus Christ that has a future. That is perspective. You know, if you look around you in this world in which we live, if you ask yourself, what is it that drives the environmental movement today? I think what drives it is, of course, a concern for creation and the well-being of creation, and that's good. But, you know, what What also drives it is this idea that if we don't fix up our own backyard, we're going to have no future. Our future is inextricably tied to this planet. This is all we've got. And we better make the best of it, because if we don't, we're finished. Oh, beloved, that's not the gospel. The gospel says we have a future. And we have a future because this, this Lord who, who buys us and who, who sets us free, by the way, is the same Lord that ushers us in to glory. 
At Christmas time, we speak a lot about glory. Or perhaps we speak even more about peace on earth. But you remember what the angels sang over the fields of Ephrathah outside Bethlehem? Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace on to man on whom his favor rests. Glory. Glory's first and glory's last and, and glory's forever. Because you see, if you're a child of God, if you're a servant of Jesus Christ, then you have a wide open future. And written above that future are the words glory. Because you believe Jesus Christ is coming again. And then not in humiliation, but in exaltation. And that when Jesus Christ comes again, he doesn't come in isolation. But in communion with all those who are his, with all of his brothers and sisters, with all of his servants and slaves. You see, we have a future. A future filled with glory. And in the meantime, the Apostle Paul even says that we are being transformed in the interim into his likeness with, with ever increasing glory in anticipation for the glory that is surely coming. And so, beloved, as we face this new week, remind yourself. And I think we all need those reminders from time to time. Remind yourself, I am a son. I am a daughter of the living God. I am a servant, even a slave of Jesus Christ. And I bear that name proudly. And I am free in Christ. And I've been marked out for glory. Marked out for glory because... Of the Lord of glory. Remember that. Apply it. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.